This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Last week, uh, we had a very wide-ranging discussion with John Philip Santos, Jeff Kripal, and Diana Walsh Pasilka. This is a new format for Dreamland. We've never really done this before, but we are at a very important inflection point in the history of mankind and the history of the mind. And I thought that bringing these people together, this group together, who live and work right at the edge, would be a valuable and important thing to do. Uh, We've introduced everybody in the last uh uh in the last edition of the show so i'm just going to mention a few things about them um john philip santos is a at this present at the present time a teacher at the university of texas san antonio uh and i will be joining him in his course uh on october the 6th and he is a uh, a remarkable man, and this is his first time on Dreamland, so I'll say a little bit more about him than I did the others last week. Uh, just know that he has a long history of uh, participation at the edge of reality. Uh, his uh, course is, what is your course called, John? I'm Unimaginable encounters in incredible places. Right. And media art literature and other great things. And it covers things like the paranormal in activity, literature, art, and then paranormal and uh, the emergence of the paranormal in Western culture and locating the borderlands in the archives of the impossible is one of the subjects. Jeff, of course, is my co-author on American Cosmic. He has a new book out called The Superhuman. Diana Walsh Pasulka is the author of American Cosmic, uh, which uh, blew up blew up the UFO community pretty completely. And she's working on another book. She doesn't have a title yet, but I know enough about it to know that it's also going to explode in another hydrogen bomb. And welcome, welcome. I'm glad you're doing it. Uh, last week, uh, you, Jeff, said, we are the future of the past and the past of the future. We are the future of the past is where I want to start this week because the past, as we were talking last week, John, about Chauvet Cave and the 5,000 years that human beings spent working in that cave, I thought to myself, what about Gobekli Tepe, where they spent a 1,000 years building those monoliths and a 1,000 years burying them? They didn't have cities. They didn't have any of that. And as you pointed out in, in Chauvet Cave and in the other cave art, in, in fact, in, it's found in Southern Europe, the representations of the human form are so vestigial 
that you have to wonder if they'd even noticed themselves at that point, if they even were aware of what they were, except for the haunting presence of that one handprint through the cave. Now, this is where I want to begin, because aren't we at a point now where we are just noticing ourselves as maybe what we really are. And when we do that, we see this strange, strange thing that you and I, the three of us all, and most of us call the presence that I started out calling the visitors because I wasn't going to call them aliens. I have no idea where they're from. Or are they from us, Jeff? Is this a symbiotic relationship, as Terence McKenna said, with ourselves somehow? What are we and where is the... Can we find, by looking in the past, something new about ourselves, something defining, perhaps? Is that directed at me, Willie? Is that, that a question? I directed the question at you, but, <laughs> but, but it made you just topple over on your chair. <laughs> I'm sure that John and Diana will are ready to pitch in too. What do you think? But I know very well you've got some things to say about it. Well, I mean, so I'll say a couple of things. I mean, this is what the the superhumanities, the new book, is about: is that the That's human isn't what right. you think it is. It's it, it. You're you're not who you think you are. And you know, you've often asked me. Lots of people ask me. Well, have you had these sorts of experiences? And I've had a few, but not many. I'm pretty much a dullard when it comes to this realm. You but, need to spend another night with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have roomed with you. It's not It's not a good idea. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, the other thing about that, that being a dullard is I just don't care because I don't identify myself with myself. I, I identify with other people and with the species. And so when someone else has an extraordinary experience, I have an extraordinary experience. And I don't say that to be nice or altruistic. I really believe that. I believe we're all one another. And I think that's what, what a lot of this material points towards. I also talk about the future of the past a lot because we are the future to the past. And the future we are also the past to the future. And one of the things you learn when you spend enough time in the UFO realm is that time isn't what you thought it was either. Um, you know, some people think that UFOs are time traveling humans. Uh, I don't know if that's the case or not, but I certainly understand why they would think that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, Whitley, but I, I really do think we're extraordinary, and I don't think we're ourselves. I think we extend far, far into the environment and the cosmos in ways we don't understand, and I also don't think we're bound to time, like like we're constantly told we are. This is one my one beef with, with historians who seem to think they can only study the past and that you know, time moves in like a linear arrow and it's all causal and material. And I'm like, I don't think so. I think that's your, certainly your Western material secular assumption, but that's just a belief system and certainly does not jive with any of the other cultures and religious traditions I'm familiar with. So own your own relativity here. 
and and take into consideration that other people experience temporality in radically different ways, including lots of people, by the way, in the Western philosophical tradition. You know, Diana mentioned Nietzsche. I mean, he was famous for thinking, not thinking, knowing that temporality is circular. And this was his one of his final teachings that he knew nobody would listen to. And of course, That's why he spoke to us who were future philosophers. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you know, as well as I do, Diana, the philosophers don't listen to. No, no, but we do. <laughs> yeah, but we do. I, I think he's great. And, yeah. Uh, but he was all about the eternal recurrence of the same, which was about the circularity of time and, and the coming Ubermensch, the coming superhumans that, that we will all someday be, but not now. We're not, we're not that. I'm not that. I don't know about that. <laughs> I have my doubts. I think you might be more that than you than you. You have a lot of great comebacks, Willie. It's a great comeback. <laughs> you know, Willie. On this question, I think a lot about you know just the experiences in the past of these these pivotal moments of revelation when when uh, the larynx moved to a position in the throat that allowed vocalization. Uh, did that happen as an event upon one person? Did it happen spontaneously in some kind of morphogenetic way across the planet? Um, you know, and and how did they know something had changed? Um, you know, uh, the the intimations of of immortality in the Wordsworth poem. You know, where he kind of he's he's um, he's remembering the joy of childhood, and this was a this was an act of invention. The idea of of a kind of a uh, subjectivity that was going to reach back and find its origins in early childhood. And it was really intimations of mortality. It was about kind of approaching death. And when did that first come on? The first, the first sense of being a bounded uh, being, you know? And so in terms of futurity and becoming superhuman, uh, how will we know when that's happened? You know, um, I've been in the last book. I, uh, my The book you mentioned, The Farthest Home is in an Empire of Fire last week. Um, in that book, as a writer, I was challenged to come to terms with the fact that there was a voice with me, a voice that had been with me since I was a kid that came to announce itself really as a time traveling ancestor from the future named Cenote Siete, Jungle Spring Seven. And, and Cenote Siete uh, claimed to be traversing time through DNA connections into our lineage, into the past. And it interacted with my ancestors, my historical ancestors. But he was from this future time called the Sona Perfecta. Something has transpired in the world. It's, it wasn't ever made clear. Um, that has changed uh, humanity radically, allowing this kind of movement through time and space. The What we think of as the World Wide Web has become a solar system-wide expansive domain of knowledge. Um, so these were feedback loops in the story that emerged that I had to trust were coming from a place that uh, was real to me, certainly. And, you know, Whitley, the, the last point I'll make on this is that one of the ways it, it manifested itself was that in, in one of the narratives that emerged through a kind of 
conglomeration of different ways that these texts came forward, automatic writing and various other uh, forms of inscription. Um, this voice reminded me of this period when I was a kid, when I had this abject fear that my parents were going to be killed in a car crash. Yeah. And so, and it was really a paralyzing abject fear in the time, probably around when I was 12 or 13. Um, it passed finally. I, I had to see a doctor about this and some counseling, but 1998, my parents were in a grievous car crash. My dad was killed in this car crash here in San Antonio. And I realized that I had been sort of immunized back in when I was 12, uh, through this experience, through this voice that suggested to me this was awaiting, transpiring. Um, and so when it happened when I was 40 years old, I had been prepared for this somehow. And so a way of thinking about, just in terms of my own story, the, the modes by which we can access um, this presence from futurity. I think writers and creative folks have all kinds of different ways of doing that in their work. Um, but you have to trust the process. You have to engage it and then trust it. You have to trust something, which gets me hmm. to you, Diana, and a book you wrote and published some years ago, a wonderful, fun book about purgatory called Heaven Can Wait. <laughs> and it, it, the past it was about was the period in the late Middle Ages when we lost the vision of childhood. You know, uh, what's the... Uh, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. Ah, uh, uh, the youth whose daily, who daily farther from the east must travel still is nature's priest and by the vision splendid is on his way attended at length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day that's from odes on intimations of immortality john that you mentioned a moment ago uh diana it faded into common day. Help! <laughs> Tell I mean, us about what happened to purgatory. Sure. Um, well, purgatory is a Catholic doctrine that is about when you die, where does your soul go? And if it's not, if it's not a terrible soul, it doesn't go to hell, and it doesn't go to heaven. It goes to this place called purgatory. But what I found, and I didn't expect to find it, was that purgatory was in a was a place. So there were several places where people would go. They would go to these caves, and they were throughout Europe, Italy. There were some in uh, Ireland. Actually, there's still one in Ireland, um, although the cave no longer exists there. People can still go to the place where purgatory was. It's called Loch Derg. Mm -hmm. And so this, this is where this idea came from. It came from an actual physical practice that people engaged in. And um, so, so purgatory, uh, there was a bestseller about it in the 1200s, and this went on to influence Dante 
um, in his his Divine Comedy and Purgatorio. Uh, so, you know, what's really interesting is that when we start to look at the things that we take for granted, like our doctrines and beliefs, we find that they once we look at the history or the origin of them, they look much different than how we practice them today. Um, I want to, if it's okay, just go back to what John brought up, because I think that that's a very powerful uh, testament to this idea of timelessness, eternity, and knowledge. So John, you just talked about a very intense experience of accessing knowledge that in our experience of time appears to be from the future. And you did this through basically a creative process. You listened to what are voices that informed your writing. Um, I'm teaching a class right now about creativity and how to access this type of information. Because what I found when I was working with people in our space program is that people who had this ability to, like Nietzsche has, Jeff, to access, you know, information they know is going to happen um, how do they do this if time is not, you know, linear? Obviously, we know that it's not. But how do they come by this knowledge? And I think that this process of creativity in which we engage something that could be what, you know, what we experience as external to ourselves, independent mm-hmm. of ourselves, so, you know, but we still experience it subjectively, obviously, because we are subjective beings. So I think that this is a really, this has to do with, this idea of the visitors in the space program, they called it our sponsors. Right. Mm. And, and so after the research and in the midst of this research I'm doing now, I'm interacting with people who've created this platform that we are now talking. And so this isn't long ago that, that these forms of technology sprung up, I mean, within, you know, from the 1990s onward, our worlds have changed and our experience of time as well have changed so that students today, my students, my kids experience time differently than I experienced time 10 years ago or even today. You know, everything is a lot more present and, um, you know, the whole idea of linear time you know, you, we, we can actually upload things right now to our phone and send it to somebody in Japan, right? And they'll receive it. So that changes our perception of time. Mm-hmm. So Jeff mentioned last week this whole perception of time as being, or maybe you mentioned it this week, Jeff, as being. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? We're, right. You're, you're we're in you're a time, time loop time. now. We're in yeah. another time. Yeah, time we're in frame. a time loop, right. So I think that this is important. Um, to to knowledge also you know how we experience mm-hmm. time how do we access this information that it, you know we still experience time as linear because we are you know we we're born we have a life and then we die but within that time frame of our lives time you know we we get information from various sources that that inform mm-hmm. our experience of things mm. Whitley, one of the, if I can take my, I'll just, it's my turn, right? And I'm just yeah, gonna, it's I'll your turn. Up. It's anyone's turn anytime. But it's yeah, turn well, now. we're going around and we're going around and I want to honor that. I, to me, the most impressive um, genre within uh, impossible phenomena is precognition. Hmm. 
And and I really mean that. And by impressive, I mean it's just so drop your jaw empirical. I mean, somebody will like I I, I wrote about a, a comic book artist named Barry Windsor Smith who had very very exquisitely detailed visions of things happening in an office he didn't even know where it was at the moment. I mean, he happened to be outside of London, you know, in his parents' home. And this all took place exactly as he saw it three years later in an office building in New York City with a with a um, traffic jam at the, at the base of it, you know. So hmm. I've also talked to people who have visited, them, visited themselves from the future as a way of sort of consoling themselves or getting themselves through a very difficult time. And so to me, there, there aren't many options here. <laughs> I mean, you, you can say that didn't happen and I don't believe you. Okay. That's your option, but you just dismissed a human being and you just dismissed a set of, of, of experiences that happen all the time, all over the globe. Or you can say, Time isn't what we think it is. The future is has already happened. And you can visit, you can jump around along the space-time continuum. To me, that's much more plausible, actually. Um, just because of these human beings who have told me these sets of experiences. And it's not just these human beings. It's case after case after case after case in the literature. Uh, and there are people who have thought about this, like Eric Wargo, whom you probably had on the show, you know, wrote a book called Time Loops, which is all about creativity. Yes. And his essential argument is that really super creative people, what they're actually doing is working towards something that already exists in the future. And so there's like this time, there's a, there's a loopy nature to creativity that, mm. and they're misperceiving it because they have to. You know, Eric's argument is that virtually all paranormal phenomena is essentially misperceived precognition. And he makes a strong case for that. And I'm like, wow, that's that's really interesting. I'll just give you an example, then I'll shut up. I have a good friend who invented the machine that places pepperonis on frozen pizzas. Okay? That's right. I've met him. Yeah, Jim, Jim. Yeah, yeah, he's a cool guy. Well, Jim saw this machine in perfect detail, and then he went out and he invented it and made a lot of money doing it, by the way. He did. Yeah. And in Eric's opinion, Eric would listen to Jim's story, and he would say, well, Jim, what really happened is you precognized the existence of this pepperoni machine eric you mean eric davis eric wargo oh eric wargo i'm yeah, sorry and you 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 engineered your way toward this future machine that already exists in the future so it's like it's like this loop again you know nietzsche was right it's 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 a circular temporality that that i think is so extraordinary here um you know the aztec the aztec uh cosmovision was also had a a circular notion of time that that which was will be again as it was before it will be again and um you know but i'm also wondering whether these reflections uh also are, are kind of a echo of this hearkening around 
the emergence of the quantum and you know the the fact that the 20th century began with the the inception of, of quantum mechanics and so we're about a hundred and some years into that that story and but we don't really know how to access it personally we we accessed it technologically to make a bomb you know uh, but how do we as individuals uh, reach that space of the of the quantum sphere and and what does it mean in terms of these questions of temporality and and space and you know this is one of the things I think is fascinating about uh, technical remote viewing that that arguably is a place where we're trying to model a kind of a operationalizing of the quantum sphere in in terms of human meaning human mind um, you know the the idea that you can associate an image and a randomly generated uh, series of numerals you put them together like on a post-it note and that random generated number directs the the mind of the remote viewer to a specific place in time and space that's that's beginning to at least reach towards however awkwardly yet um, to some way of accessing the quantum sphere in terms of human power and human faculties and maybe in 150 years 200 years 500 years 5,000 years that has reached a kind of a, a huge new uh, way of expressing our human identity so but if that's true then it's already true in the sense that it's already here and you yeah. know and that gets me back to yeah. an experience of yours jeff uh and we're going to depart from just from our 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 journey around this circle for a moment because it's germane to what you just said and that is that when you were with me that night and the visitor showed up in the and came close to you you experienced you it was a, an experience of a, a kind of devastation you 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 felt like a sense of the world collapsing or a great collapse of some kind taking place and what was probably happening was something i had gotten used to because simply because it just happened to me so much that when this presence comes t toward us close to us we're no longer in linear time and there's a fear connected with seeing the future that's very intense and i think it's because if we saw the future we would uh if we lived seeing the future we would in effect have no present there would be no sense of of newness about our lives we would like being being bodies living bodies in a dead world what if the presence is like that a living body in a dead world because it has seen too much what if it is the part of us of mankind that has seen too much and is trying to come back and trick us into believing that it is something other than what it is mm -hmm. so that it can participate once again in the wonder of being uh being ignorant of the future 
I want the three of you to respond to that. Jeff, why don't you start, and then Diana? Well, yeah, I'll say two things. First of all, that's that's Eric Wargo's argument, is that you you have to misperceive precognition because to preserve that sense of that newness and that 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 sense of of the present. So, um, the experience you're referring to with you, Whitley, this is what this is why I think it's a mistake to room with you is. <laughs> You know, I, I, I experienced a very distinct splitting of consciousness while I was asleep, and half of me was clearly watching something in the room, and I distinctly heard it say, "Oh my God," and it was it was me saying that. I I heard me saying that, but the other part of me, the sleeping or or aware side of me, didn't have a clue, didn't see anything, and was a, you know had its eyes closed, was looking the other way, so. There was this split, you know, in consciousness that was very distinct and very obvious to me. Um, the other thing I'll say is one of my favorite writers of all time is Philip K. Dick. Me too, I think. Wonderful. And one of the reasons I love PKD is he had this a series of revelations. He called them revelations. And he experienced what he called VALIS, which was his acronym for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. It was essentially a cosmic mind in the far future to which we were all headed or moving. It was a very Terence McKenna-like kind of vision. Um, but what he said late in his life, which has always struck me as really amazing, was that actually what VALIS probably was was his own mind in different parts of his life cycle, all laid out, and he was experiencing himself throughout his entire life cycle. So it had this sense of omniscience and this sense of vastness to it, and it felt like a god. He says, you know, that's how we would perceive a human being if we perceived the full lifespan of, 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 a, of a human being, much less a human species, Right? I mean, if you experience the entire species into the far future, you would you would experience that as a deity or a divinity or a cosmic mind. And so I've always thought, wow, that's that's an amazing way of thinking about the human species. And it's also what I mean about making the impossible possible. The only reason we think things are impossible is because of our metaphysical assumptions. That's it. If you're a materialist and you think there's only a physical linear linear causality, then all this stuff is nonsense we're talking about. It just simply can't happen. But if you break out of that metaphysical system and you think, for example, that all time already exists, well, then precognition isn't only possible, it's, it's predictable. Of course it happens. Because people snap out of that, that location in space and time all the time. So I, I do think this is like a really important issue because we have to realize that what we consider to be impossible is a function of ourselves and our assumptions. It's not a function of the way the, the world actually works. Um, and I think this notion of time is, is, is probably the best place to, to show that. Diana, you know people who work with the materials. We all do. I mean, I don't know if you do, John, but Jeff and I also do. 
and they have bled the, the, the discoveries made from these extraordinary and anomalous materials out into the public space in various ways. Uh, one of the first people I ever talked to in this field was Dr. Robert Sauerbacher in 1986, who was introduced to me by Stanton Friedman. He was a metallurgist. And he told me, uh, he described the materials to me uh, that that have eventually come into medical technology, into aerospace technology, and many other technologies. Where are they from, do you think? Could, could it be that the future threw something back at us? And in order to change its own reality somehow? What, what have you gl gleamed from people like Tyler? In, I, I know this is something that must have come up from time to time. The question of the materials? Of the materials the... and where they're from. Are they from another world? Are they from the future? Or both? Yeah, I think that, um, well, obviously that's a very good question. Um, whether I can answer it, I don't know, but I can talk a bit about my experiences with people who study anomalous materials and what they think and, you know, and contribute to this discussion in terms of basically this history of what John mentioned earlier, this kind of giant internet, <laughs> right, in the cosmos that somehow seems to have, for want of a better phrase, uh, a mind of its own. Okay, so could this be the super mind? And I know, Jeff, that would make you horrified to hear because it is technology. And right. I know how, how much you love technology. So, um, all right. So, yeah. So a lot of, so, I mean, there's this idea, this thing called the newosphere, which was uh, coined by not Chardon, who's in the Catholic tradition and is a Jesuit, scientist and anthropologist, but, um, but a Russian uh, person who is actually a cosmist. And a cosmist is a, is a person who, and we have cosmists here, we just haven't named them. Um, and they're, they're people who believe that in many ways, it, we live in a cosmic society and we're beginning to understand ourselves as stellar beings. And we have communication with things that were once called angels, now we call them extraterrestrials or sponsors or vi visitors. And a lot of times they speak to us symbolically, okay? A lot of their language is symbolic, uh, math symbolic, okay? So the ways in which we have achieved getting off of Earth have been through math and equations and things like that. Um, you know, so the symbolism of the mythologies, the religion and, and things like that. So this is kind of the interface. This is how we, we, uh, we understand. So all of a sudden Whitley asks, you know, where do these materials come from? Are they like from the future and, and, you know, are they throwback or something like that? Um, were they already here? How come, you know, I have some friends who are scientists and, and ask me, how come they've only been found here in the United States? And so apparently they've been found in other countries too. Like, why don't we know more about these, these types of materials? Well, it seems that we're only able to acknowledge 
how anomalous they are through our technologies. So we have quantum microscopes that can look at them on these, these levels that understand the ways in which they work, their isotopic ratios and things like that. So I think that technology is not something that we need to say is separate from us or a tool from us, but is actually mm. part of us. Could they be tech? Could they be us from the future? Could we be tech? That's what Tyler thought. He thought that we actually were technology, that we just didn't recognize ourselves as such. Do we misrecognize ourselves as what we aren't? Okay, so these are all questions that I have, and I don't really have answers to, but I do have this. I do am now working with people who are technologists. And like I said, I have created a lot of the technology we're using now to talk and, you know, and talk to people from all over the world. And what they see is something very similar to John, what you, what your voice told you about, which was this, they actually use this language of the newosphere, which basically people in the early 20th century had thought of as a, a physical type of um, internet that was, that we are all going to hook into on on some level. We we are already hooked into it. We just aren't aware of it. And with more and more people becoming um, cognizant of it, it becomes more and more of a reality. And so um, could the material, so Whitley, you specifically asked me about these materials. And what I think is really interesting is that these materials are, you know, we wouldn't actually even consider these materials anomalous unless we had technology to show us that they were. Mm -hmm. And this yeah. is happening at the same time that we're, you know, we have the web uh, telescope showing us what's, you know, other places to be in the universe and what happens there. So, I mean, we're opening up our worlds at this very macroscopic level and microscopic level at the same time. Dr. Sauerbrocker said that the material that he had studied, which I think was, it must have been the same material that was taken to Wright Field from Roswell, uh, was had possessed the, its extraordinary strength because it was there was a molecular grid in it. It was, in other words, it was fabricated at the molecular level. Amazing, um, John. I want to go back to. I want to slightly change our direction here. I want to go back to Maria of Agrida and the location that yeah. these materials that we're talking about was found, were found. Mm. Uh, uh, it happens that the apparitions and the donation site that Diana talks about in American Cosmic are within a few miles of each other in the world. Now, contextually, I'm sure you're familiar with a wonderful book by Miguel uh, Leon Portilla, Aztec Thought and Culture. Of course, yeah. Which makes reference to the extremely subtle uh, vision of time mm. that was present in the Aztec culture. Mm. So wrapping all of that up into an easily <laughs> bundle as a question here it is in your lap good luck well you know Whitley I mean um, you know the Maria de Agreda story is so fascinating in terms of uh, 
you know, the, the greater uh, Southwest and the Borderlands um, uh, platform or stage for all of these these uh, events, you know, um, there are stories, you know, her, the, the core story is that she was reading the accounts, the stories of Bernal Diaz de Castillo, the conquest of Mexico. She was re- reading early explorer accounts of encountering these indigenous peoples in the northern part of New Spain, which which is what is now New Mexico. And a particular tribe there, the Jumanos, um, who she was she was targeting the Jumanos. So she had a target. You know, she had an actual destination in her um, psychic bilocations. Uh, here in San Antonio, the Coahuilteca community claims there are stories of manifestations of a blue lady here. So she might have misfired, you know, the geo geolocating in that time wasn't as advanced as it is today. She didn't have a, a GPS uh, working on her behalf. But, you know, she was uh, preparing for the, the arrival of the gospel. You know, the she wanted to, uh, in, in her interactions, the psychic interactions, she sought to prepare them, to kind of get them for the arrival of the, the ministry. Um, What's interesting about the way that the, that kind of the esoteric can can engage the historical is that later one of her disciples, so a hundred years later, one of her disciples becomes the figure who brings the missions to San Antonio, and he sees what he's doing in the creation of the missions in San Antonio uh, as the fulfillment of this um, visionary project that had begun a century before. So he was in interaction with that deep path, you know. And Leon Portillo, you know, gives us a he gives us a, a great glimpse into not just the, the temporality, the Aztec world, but for the Aztecs, they had the idea that the inframundo, the inner world, was coterminous with the the evident world. And you could you could access it through gorges and caves and springs. So it wasn't as if it was some beyond. You could interact with um, forces that were beyond the human in these particular geographic settings. And they still exist in, throughout Mexico. And there, there have been extraordinary uh, discoveries at Teotihuacan in the last um, 15 years, the, the great pyramid city outside of Mexico City, the, the place of the ancients. Um, and these discoveries are revealing just how um, performative these beliefs were, you know, that, that we, are, we can be in contact with the archive of our ancestries and, and be in, in conversation with, with that archive, but we have to bring it into the repertoire. You know, we have to bring that knowledge into some kind of active repertoire you dig a tunnel, you create a, a ritual space underneath the pyramid of Quetzalcoatl. There you're going to kind of uh, perform certain kind of core ritual observances that are going to keep the, the universe in order. Um, so we're just discovering this now. We're, we're in the golden age of Mexican archaeology, but we're learning about the ways that the Aztecs were active in the Aztecs and the, the Teotihuacanos, the, the ancients of, of yes. Mexico. They activated these these knowledge traditions, and um, so you know the, the the priest who comes to San Antonio to build the missions, he was activating this prophetic tradition of Maria de Agreda, and 
and we're learning much more about early Mesoamerican civilization, the way that they activated their deep knowledge traditions. So, you know, it's one of the reasons why I think in a, just a moment here to, to acknowledge the extraordinary event of the opening of the archive of the impossible at, at Rice, that, that we have here this, this um, repository of letters you received, Whitley, the communion letters, um, material relating to uh, uh, psychic remote viewing, a uh, host of other different domains. But the fact that we're building uh, this archive so that we yes. can so that we can craft this new repertoire we can we can activate this new repertoire um so you know that's something that people can visit they can read through the communion letters uh i don't know how many there are whitley about ten thousand or something i i don't know how many there are in the archive i haven't counted them but i think it's well over ten thousand well you know I, I thought this is something i could do in a day i'd go in there and have a look and then i see like they start bringing out box after box after box <laughs> I've been working on a, on a book called Them about the visitors that uses just 10 of the letters wow. and does a really deep analysis of the, 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 the cultural implications of and the message in these encounters. I thank God she Anne saved those letters. That's all and I can say. Uh, Anne's notes on those letters where she she establishes a kind of a taxonomy and has reference points. She's an archivist's dream come true. I know she is. <laughs> she, and the thing was she could she could easily read two or three thousand of them in a week. It was ex- wow. she had the most wow. she, she now I want to go, go on though back i don't want to lose our train of thought here i want to go to you diana because we made reference to heaven can wait earlier mm-hmm. uh, which is a lovely book folks it's if you want to have some real real serious fun uh pick up heaven can wait and um you will you will learn about the catholic idea of purgatory which diana has already explained but here's the moment that's important i think in the context of this discussion about time and and our relationship to it and the numinous world and our relationship to that. And I would like you to speak to this. In the Middle Ages, there were many, many experiences in that cave. That, uh, and it's a, like the type of cave that John talked about. You could tell us a little bit about the cave. But then as rationality began to dawn people went into the cave again and that wasn't there had it ever been there or was were the people simply seeing visions of themselves in that cave diana what is really happening in the context of the human mind in this respect what have we lost and what might we gain sure that's a great I remember that. So in the cave's history, so the cave was around in the Middle Ages throughout um, the Rome attempted at two points to get rid of the cave. It was located in Ireland on an island and people traveled to the cave. You had to be a pretty bad person to, to get entrance to the cave. You'd actually walk into the cave and you'd stay there for 24 hours. And if you survived, you're 
your sins would be, they were wiped out. Okay. So what happened in the cave? So when people went into the cave in the middle ages, in the late middle ages, they saw, it was basically uh, an entrance into a space where people would see angels, demons, um, they would confront their own demons, right? They would have to fight demons. And so it was a cave for spiritual warfare. And basically it was a cave in which you were confronted with evil and you had to basically fight for your soul. And if you did that successfully, then you were, um, you know, cleansed. Okay. So it was like a redemptive cave if you were good enough to redeem yourself. Okay. So by the time, and by the way, this was very powerful. This was a very powerful place for pilgrimage. People would go there, the, you know, tales of the cave spread. And so it, it basically challenged the Catholic hierarchy in Rome because it was a devotional practice of the people, right? And they also had control over their own souls and Rome didn't necessarily. So they sent people from Rome to cover up the cave. And there's that. And so then over time, though, um, the cave became a place where people went to, they wouldn't, they would no longer see the, the other world. They would no longer be hooked into the other world. Um, it exists today and people still go there and you have to fast. You can't, you know, drink water or anything like that. And I think that that we're recovering that idea because now if you go and you look at what, you know, now it's very digitized and people can actually put comments about their experiences. What I found is that they're also having very intense experiences of the other world while they're there in Loch Derg. It's still a place people still go there. Uh, I think they get upwards of a million people a, a year. My word, Jeff, we are talking about the edge between the humanities and the superhumanities in one sense. Uh, if you could, can you tell us now what your vision of the superhumanities is? Because I think it's a vision that, in, that makes sense of both the cave as an empty cave and the cave as filled with with something else about us. And it makes sense in the context of what was happening underground in Mexico so long ago. Where are we going and how do we find the superhumanities in such a way that we can integrate them into our culture? Well, what the super the superhumanities are the humanities as they exist today in the university that can take seriously these extraordinary experiences that everybody has been talking about for, for two episodes. And the argument is not that we'll land on some solution, but that if we pay attention to these phenomena, we will gradually shift what we think a human being is, and so what a human being will become. In other words, it'll, it'll become culturally influential and we'll change ourselves by thinking about ourselves in different ways. And all of these debates between the superhuman and the human will remain. The, they won't reach a resolution, but the superhumanities is that process in which we try to relate those two dimensions. And the, the example I give at the beginning of the book is 
look, for literally hundreds of centuries, the medieval Catholic Church tried to argue about whether the contemplative life or the active life was superior. And the result of that debate was not a solution. It was the production of different religious orders who landed on different accents. You know, some of the monastic orders said, no, the contemplative life is the way to go. This is what we're going to emphasize. Other religious orders emphasized the active life, and they founded hospitals and and charities and worked for the poor and missionary activity, whatever they did. There was no resolution between the contemplative and the the active life, but there were a solution. There were a series of, of social institutions that were created out of this debate. And that's that's really the argument, Willie, is that once we acknowledge that the superhuman exists and that we're it, um, but we're also the human, we're also a political animal, we're also social, we're also in a historical context. And once we try to relate those two things, we're going to come up with new social institutions and new uh, visions of who, who, who we are and what we can become. I think when we acknowledge the existence of the superhuman and we look back across our past to our myths and our culture as it was, we see a different world. Yeah. Can, can I say something there? Cause it, it goes back to what Diana said. Yeah, so sure. There's this one, there are wonderful passages in Nietzsche's um, unpublished notebooks, which are now published by the way and translated and one of the big questions he keeps asking himself is, have there already been superhumans? And he basically says yes. <laughs> and then he'll say no, and then he'll say yes, and then he'll say no. But where he really locates them is in the religions and in the mythologies. And he says, well, clearly we've had this vision for a long, long time, but they're still coming. They're still on the future horizon. So I just, I just love that because he struggles with the question. And he doesn't, he doesn't really land, you know? Mm. You know, I think in, in so many ways that <clears throat> we're, we're operating, our operating system, uh, to use a technological metaphor there, you know, our operating system is essentially still the construction of subjectivity that Wordsworth launched, you know? So with the intimations owed, the idea of this kind of uh, uh, a subjectivity that has this range of... Um, uh, time, memories of childhood and formation and uh, coming of age and such. So we're still operating under a, a pretty old operating system. There hasn't been a kind of update, you know, and, and this update is is the conversation that, that we're having in a sense that, you know, uh, it occurs to me to ask the question, like, why is this happening now? Mm-hmm. You know, we may not be able to answer that question. It could be the, the onset of, of quantum mechanics 100 years ago or, or the, um, the detonation of atomic weapons that pierced uh, the dimensional veils of the universe and got us some new attention. But the fact is that we are having the conversation. So we may not be able to answer why this is coming on now, why the cycle moveth in... Madame Blavatsky's terms, the idea that in this time, the cycle moveth. But I think it's undeniable from a conversation like this, and these conversations I'm sure are happening many other places around the world, evidence that the cycle 
doth move <laughs> this moment. But John, I have a question. Why do you think we have not, we haven't experienced an update? Well, I think what you talked about earlier, Diana was, you know, in, talk, in talking about our interface with technology, you know, um, that is one place where we are rehearsing. We're rehearsing a new way of uh, some newly dawning faculties in, in Frederick Meyer's uh, terms. We're, we're, we're staking out ways of being that uh, one day we may wake up and be able to access without the tool, without the, you know, Samsung or iPhone or whatever. So um, well, wait, John. rehearsing our way in. So I would suggest this. In our past, Homo sapiens um, existed alongside Neanderthals, right? For a while before yeah. Neanderthals kind of went extinct. Yeah. What if we're what if we're doing that now? Yeah. So yeah. we wouldn't. I mean, comparison. Yeah. We wouldn't. Nece- we wouldn't necessarily. I, you know, identify. You know, with the other. I mean, Elon Musk has said that we're bootstrapping the next species, humans, Homo sapiens, at least. That's that's pure X Men. <laughs> yeah. It sure yeah. is. It's fascinating, though. I think it's it's happening. I think it's I think we're here already. Yeah. You know, in George Dyson's book, uh, Darwin Among the Machines, uh, you know, George is a brilliant writer, son of Freeman, sister, uh, brother of Esther Dyson. In his book, uh, Darwin Among the Machines, he really traces the uh, our um, our interaction with technology from its earliest origins in terms of mathematics and and then the development of difference engines and early computing. He grows up in Princeton, New Jersey, walking in the woods where he finds the ruins of the first IAS computer, the first Institute of Advanced Study computer, is in an old barn. And it was this huge apparatus in an old barn. So he, he, he has this encounter with this archaeological you know, evidence of uh, another era of humans playing with uh, the idea of machinic knowledge and um, he, in a sense, claims in this book, or he says that the story there tells that we are, in a sense, handmaidens to a new kind of human becoming that is very involved with AI. You know, that, that, um, that our own uh, destiny, our, 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 our being, and the prospect of our transfer, transformation is deeply bound up in this. Um, so when you think about like the proliferation of videos of you know, unidentified aerial phenomena, the, just the proliferation because of the way that we have access to cameras now spontaneously, ranging all the way to the, the very technical imaging used in the TikTok videos, you know, that suggests that we're in this kind of rehearsal phase of a new way of interacting with the phenomenon, you know, where before it was lore and hypnosis and um, you know various other ways of accessing it, this is adding in. So it's kind of advancing that conversation. You know, we have incredibly, we've come to the end of two hours together and I can't believe it. Uh, we have, this is this kind of conversation is very necessary and it has to expand 
and you have to guys have to take it out into the world because um, this this is how we need to interact with each other in order to find a way of thinking about the present and 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 how it is uh, the shadow of the present it leans into the future. Um, I would like to thank you all for spending this time with the Dreamland audience and with me. And if we could just for a moment bring our minds together and our, our hearts in a new way. We're together now. We're here now for one moment. Where will we go? Is it that we don't know? That we already know? That we have already known? And that presence that is here in the Tic Tacs, in the other UFOs, in the close encounter experiences, and in our minds and hearts is both the strangest thing in the world, the strangest thing we have ever known, and it is us. And I would thank you all for participating in this. Uh, Jeff Kripal's new book is The Superhumanities. Diana's book is... Uh, uh, <coughs> excuse me. I'm so sorry. Diana's book is American Cosmic. And John's wonderful reminiscence really about his life and family is the farthest home is an empire of fire. And if you want to find somebody else, this book is a really good place to go. Thank you so much for being with us on Dreamland. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.